This is my cause. I'm like the man who single-handedly built the rocket and went to the moon. Oh, what's his name? Apollo Creed? Please, let's just go to sleep. No, I refuse to share a bed with someone who thinks I'm crazy. Unless you're feeling amorous. Well, no, I'm not. Well then, good night. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film. Or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, well, hey, that's where that Simpson joke comes from. Regardless, each week, we pick one that one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me, as always, is the Rocky to my Mickey, my co-host, Nate Storing. How you doing today, buddy? I'm good. I feel like I've gone the distance this week. Are you, are you going to fly now? I'm going to fly now. Great score. Bill Conti, well done. Well done. Hell His yeah. score for the James Bond movie he did is diarrhea, but this is this one's real good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. On the record, it is a very, very good score. Did you know he did a James Bond yeah. score? Yeah. I think it's that uh, I'm, let me look it up. I'm trying to remember which one it is for your eyes. Oh, God, we're getting way off track right off the bat. <laughs> I know, right off the bat for your eyes only. Not a very good Bond movie. Not a very good Bond theme. Um, anyway. OK, but we're not here to talk about James Bond this week. We watched the 1976 classic. And I do feel like I am right in calling this one a stone cold classic. Oh, yeah. Sylvester Stallone's. Rocky. Or I guess, is it Sylvester Stallone's Rocky or John G. Avildsen's Rocky? Mm. Ooh. Are we going to discuss wow. that? I think we're going to discuss that. Foreshadowing. Uh, <laughs> you might remember the Rocky franchise from such Simpson episodes as Season 2's Brush with Greatness, Season 4's Krusty Gets Cancelled, Season 6's Lemon of Troy, and Season 8's The Homer They Fall and The Springfield Files. Of course, whenever I think of Rocky and The Simpsons, I think of Rocky 2 plus Rocky 5 equals Rocky 7, Adrian's Revenge. Yeah, probably the best Rocky joke on The Simpsons, which is ironic because it's not actually about Rocky 1, which is what we're here to talk about today. But And also, how many Rockies have there now been? Are we actually officially up to 7? We uh, No, I think there was Rocky 5 and then there was Rocky Balboa, which is right. Rocky 6. Right. And, and, then, and then there was Creed, which has Rocky in it. So is that Rocky 7? Not I, really. Well, OK, fair enough. I, I have not seen any of the sequels. In fact, up until last night, had not seen a single Rocky until. Which is <laughs> astounding. Well, yeah, I mean, so Rocky is apparently one of Nate's favorite movies, which like if you if you know my best friend Nate Storing. You would not peg that Rocky would be in your wheelhouse, and yet here we are, and I'm sh- yeah. I'm really excited to unpack this with the Rocky superfan, Nate Story. I mean, it, I, I, it's funny, because like, I wouldn't necessarily say it's one of my favorite movies, but I do think it's really, really good, and mm-hmm. I have a very soft spot for the sequels also even though they're not they're not quite the masterpiece the original is it's a very fun series to watch well before we actually unpack the movie we always like to unpack the simpsons episode first so let's let's chat about the homer they fall season 8 
Episode 3, original air date November 10th, 1996, directed by Mark Kirkland and written by Jonathan Collier. I watched the episode at lunch today, and I, mm-hmm. if we're being honest, to call this a Rocky episode is maybe a bit of a stretch. It's it's a boxing. It's a boxing episode. It's yeah, a boxing yeah. episode. And obviously there mm-hmm. are references to Rocky, but I don't know that I would necessarily classify this fully as a Rocky parody necessarily. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. So, like, the plot of this episode is basically that after Homer tries to rat out Bart's bullies to (laughs) their parents, he gets beaten up, and then he finds out that he's basically a James Bond villain (laughs) and has some kind of crazy problem with his brain where he can't be knocked out. He's basically wearing a football helmet at all times. Dr. Hibbert calls it Homer Simpson syndrome. Why, I could wallop you all day with this surgical two-by-four without ever knocking you down. (laughs) Exactly. And so Mo is like, well, you know, maybe you'd be good at boxing. I've never seen a guy take a hit that good. So that's basically like the setup. And the episode, after kind of doing a little research, it seems like the plot is kind Mm -hmm. of a mashup in typical Simpsons fashion between the harder they fall which is an old boxing movie starring Humphrey Bogart. I believe it's his last movie. Oh, um, and Rocky. So the, the Harder They Fall is basically about this unscrupulous manager slash journalist played by Bogey, who basically convinces a naive boxer to sort of like come under his wing. And then he fixes all of the fights so that he sort of like <laughs> is creating this star But then they take that and they mash it up with Rocky, the whole idea of this underdog challenger getting the opportunity to fight the heavyweight champion of the world, right? Right. So it's kind of those two things together. And Mo is sort of somewhere between Humphrey Bogart and Mickey from The Harder They Fall and from Rocky. And Homer is not really a Rocky character. He's probably, I haven't seen The Harder They Fall, but he seems like he's more like the main character in that the kind of naive boxer, not an underdog with heart who never applied himself or whatever. Um, but he does have the same colored trunks as Rocky, I noticed. So, ooh, well observed. You know, white, well white observed. with a red stripe, not red with a white stripe uh, as Rocky. Oh, yeah. Excellent. We're jumping um, ahead there, though. You know, no spoilers. And then you have yeah. the heavyweight champion of the world, Dredderick Tatum. Dredderick Tatum. not really an Apollo Creed parody or a, a Muhammad Ali parody, which is where you get Apollo Creed. He is really a parody of Mike Tyson, who yeah. was recently in the news when this episode came out and was recently released from prison. And so it's really a parody of that. And you also have Lucius Sweet, who is... In the script, apparently, was written as he's a Don King type who sounds and looks exactly like Don King. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty much the vibe. But again, it's this mashup of all these different things two different movies for the plot, plus contemporary affairs, plus right. a bunch of other boxing parodies throughout, including, of course, Raging Bull. Right. Uh, yeah, of course. You can't sort of dance around the fact, no pun intended. That there's also a beautiful Raging Bull parody in the middle of of this episode. So I guess the question then is, why are they choosing to parody Rocky? Why do you think, Nate? I mean, obviously at this point, Rocky is, as we said, a Stone Cold classic. There's been five movies made at the time that this episode has aired, which is pretty remarkable. But what are your thoughts on why they chose to parody this? Yeah, so I mean, I feel like 
this is one of those weird ones. It's almost a bit like Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, right? Mm -hmm. In that the references to Rocky in this are pretty subtle and they're more on the plot side than they are on the upfront scene side or like visual or anything like that or lines. It's more the setup of the episode. And I feel like part of that is just that, look, if you want to do a boxing episode, it's kind of unavoidable to reference Rocky in some way because not only is it a classic, but it, honestly, it kind of reshaped the, the boxing genre or the sports genre in a, in a bunch of ways. And so right. it feels kind of inevitable that you're going to include it. The other thing is, I suspect they really wanted to talk about Mike Tyson and Don mm. King and like get that right. in there. And right. so the Rocky formula of like he gets to fight the the heavyweight champion of the world is like a perfect setup for bringing that Mike Tyson character in. So right. I think it's just sort of a, a, a parody of convenience in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, because you can't really do a boxing episode and not touch on Rocky or Raging Bull. You're going to have to make reference to them. So, But they're, they seem a lot more interested in the earlier eras of boxing. Well, Again, of course. Classic Simpsons fashion, you know, like obviously you have The Harder They Fall, but also they're interested in like, you know, hobo boxing and like <laughs> back in the day when everyone had funny names like the Southern Dandy and stuff like that. Kid uh, gorgeous. Not so much like, yeah, Kid Gorgeous. Not kid- not so much like 70s boxing and 80s boxing, you know? I do love the run of all the different hobo names, which apparently were contributed by, surprise, surprise, John Schwartzwelder. <laughs> and then I do love Moe's run about his boxing name of uh, Kid Gorgeous, then Kid Presentable, and then Kid Moe. <laughs> <laughs> i also love the first hobo he fights who can't stop checking his bindle <laughs> yeah that's a lovely little like subtle subtle line that's in there this is one of those classic simpson episodes where it starts in one direction and then like almost most of the first act has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the episode and i feel like that was right. very very commonplace in the oakley and weinstein years i feel like they mm-hmm. did that a lot and but never in a way that sort of made you go where the hell is this going or like why the hell did they do that like it always felt natural and um the jokes in that sort of first act are always so great and this mm-hmm. literally has one of my probably my top 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 five favorite simpson moments that always makes me laugh and more <laughs> just thinking about it makes me laugh and morgan always rolls her eyes because i think it's so funny and she does not understand why i think it's so funny but when they go to the gadget store and bart says hey Lise, check out the space age toothbrush and yardley smith's line delivery of that's an electric nostril groomer makes me like it's like <laughs> spit take level funny to me i don't know why but i just love it um it's just the delivery is so perfect it's it's it's, and like the animation like is she's so dry and deadpan it's genius but then like you said (laughs) we meet bart's bully's parents for the first and only time and i love that they're dressed exactly like their kids for some reason of course in the same way that like you know millhouse's parents both look like they're related (laughs) to him and each other for whatever reason, all of the couples, all of the parents, they look too related to each other. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and then th- there's also a great line from Marge when Homer, like, sort of reveals that he's going to become this professional boxer, where she says, Homer, of all the crazy ideas you've had, this one ranks somewhere in the middle. Which I just love that, like, she's, it's just that's a classic sort of Simpsons approach where it's like, 
We're not going to go right out there and say this is the craziest thing you've ever done, but it's certainly not the least crazy thing that you've ever done. Right. <laughs> and Marge being ever being the voice of re- reason has to address that. So, yeah, totally. Another like fun little thing that I noticed was in Mo's office. He has a whole bunch of posters in the background and a couple of them, of course, reference Simpsons writers. You have mm. Moses Lag versus Bill Oakley. And Mark Kirkland versus David Silverman on oh, <laughs> in the background go. there. Now yeah, that's so a that's, fight that's, I would like to see. Yeah, there you go. The classic sort of VHS humor that they have going on here. Okay, well, let's get into it. Let's get into the movie. Nate, I know you're so excited to do this. You were chomping at the bit for us to do Rocky. Hell yeah. So let's unpack it. Let's talk about 1976's Rocky. All right, man. Well, to start... How would you sum up this movie in a sentence? Um, bah, 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 bah. I should have probably thought about this beforehand. Um, <laughs> an amateur underdog boxer gets the opportunity of a lifetime to prove that he can go the distance. All right. Sure. I'll take it. I'll take it. It's a very pitchable movie. Yeah. And it's also the plot of this movie is not complicated. Like, it's literally. No. We meet amateur boxer. We meet professional boxer. Professional boxer wants to make a name for himself and decides he's going to box with amateur boxer. For whatever reason, they decide to go with the amateur that we met at the beginning of the movie. And there's like a romance subplot throughout and... um, A (laughs) B-plot. Yeah, a B-plot that is best friend's sister happens to be bookish but if she just took off that hat and glasses she she'd be adorable um (laughs) it is very very simple in its structure but i think that's one of the things the film ultimately has going for it is that it doesn't Mm -hmm. try to bite off more than it can chew um and i kind of admire that about it yeah i think it does a lot with that very simple plot just in the acting, the small moments that it sort of finds within that plot go a really long way to kind of fleshing it out beyond just that really basic one line. So, Adam, you obviously haven't seen this before, but how would you describe your sort of background with this movie? What did you know about it before? You know, what was its sort of reputation in your mind? I mean, (laughs) this is going to come as a surprise to no one who's been listening to our podcast. Uh, I knew about this movie through the AFI Top 100. Um, there you go. It's so funny. It's one of those movies that I never saw, never really had any desire or interest to see because I don't really care for sports movies because I find them to generally mm-hmm. be pretty samey. Um, yep. I knew it was sort of like the movie that gave Sylvester Stallone his big break. I knew that. Talia Shire, a.k.a. Connie Corleone, a.k.a. um, Francis Ford (laughs) Coppola's sister, was in it. I knew it had a kick-ass theme song, and I Mm -hmm. knew that Rocky didn't win. That was basically what I knew. I I, I did not realize that Apollo Creed was Carl Weathers, and when he showed up for the first time, I, of course, naturally couldn't stop thinking about that scene in Arrested Development where he tells Tobias that he's got a stew going, baby. You take this home, throw it in a pot, add some broth, a potato. Baby, you got a stew going. So (laughs) I think I want a refund. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't really know what to expect. If I'm being 100% honest, I kind of went into it being like, 
this might be a bit of a slog for me because mm-hmm. it's not really my cup of tea, not something that mm-hmm. I would normally choose to watch. But knowing that you are so fond of the film and spoke so highly of it, I was sort of like, okay, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to give it a chance and we'll see where it takes me. But uh how about you? Like, how You're, did you... you are keeping your cards real close to your oh, chest? I'm giving them real <laughs> close to my chest. Yeah, no, I know. I'm not. I told you, I'm not. I'm not giving you an inch before I'm ready. Um, how about you, though? How did you come to? Because again, like knowing you and your taste, the fact that you think so highly of Rocky is insane to me. Because this does not. Yes, there's nothing about this movie that feels like a Nate Storing movie. Totally. I, it's so funny. Cause I was trying to think back, like, when did I first see this movie? So like, I don't think I ever saw it growing up because like, you know, we're not a sports family. I'm not big on sports myself to your point. We should point out that both Nate and I, we got our high school gym credit, not by taking gym, but by taking kinesiology, because that's how much of not sports <laughs> right. <guys> we are. <laughs> the thought of exactly. us actually doing physical activity was mortifying. So we would much rather do projects about, uh, I think you made a virtual knee, if I'm not mistaken. I did. I got yeah. 100% on that project. Thank <laughs> yeah. you very much. Yeah. And I made a documentary about football hooliganism that was hosted, I am doing air quotes, hosted by Jason Statham. And I think, I don't think I got 100%, <laughs> I but that. I got very, I did, I did very well on that project. I think our teacher was very impressed by what these two art students were capable of doing. Um, so all that to say, I think I first saw it in university. Right. I'm pretty sure that it was part of my little run after I watched The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is one of my mm. favorite movies. I sort of watched that on a whim and was sort of like, look, there are all these movies out there that you'd seen parodied everywhere, that you'd heard about, but you'd, you'd never actually seen them, right? And so, you know, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and Rocky are both movies that have this reputation that is so jokey, you know, yeah. they're really kind of easy to make fun of. And so I'm pretty sure I watched it after I saw The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly in a run of movies where I was sort of watching these highly parodied movies. And I remember watching it and being like, man, this is actually a really good movie. Like, it's not just fun. It's not just iconic. It's actually, like, unexpected, I think, in the way that most of the runtime is used. Mm. You know, as Stallone was was always saying when he was promoting this movie, you know, a lot of people think it's a fight <laughs> picture, but, you know, it's not really a fight picture, right? It's like uh, drama, you know? It, it is. It's character actors yeah. acting for most yeah. of the movie, yeah. and then there's a fight at the end, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that's sort of my experience with it, and I've rewatched it several times. I've watched the entire series. I don't think I saw Rocky Balboa when it came out, but I've watched all of the Creed movies in theaters since they came oh, out. Oh, okay, wow. Um, okay. And really, really enjoyed them. I think actually Creed is pretty incredible as a series. I think all three movies are really, really good and all kind of have a different take on that character and really stretch the Rocky formula in different directions too, which right. I appreciate. Right. You obviously had seen this post Karate Kid, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Right. Cause I definitely saw karate kid when I was young, when I was right. a karate yeah, yeah, kid. Yeah. Okay. And this was like, definitely when I was at university. Right. Okay. Well, we've already sort of talked a little bit about the plot, but I feel like we owe it to our audience to do our usual official plot synopsis from a random source. So, uh, <laughs> what, have, what have you got for me today, Nate? 
Yeah. So I was looking around. I, you know, often I try to go find a press kit, but the press kit for this movie, because it was very indie, I mean, you know, it was technically United Artists, but there was not a big budget, right? The press kit for this was like just a series of photos with captions, basically. It <laughs> okay, there wasn't right. like a, a fancy press kit for it. So um, I found something from that, but it's a little too short. So I'm going to read a synopsis from the back of the original 1982 VHS release of the movie. Right. Awarded Best Picture of the Year in 1976, Rocky has won the hearts of millions everywhere. Sylvester Stallone stars in the title role as a two-bit fighter with a once-in-a-lifetime shot at the world heavyweight title. Talia Shire plays Adrian, a lonely young woman who develops a tender and beautiful relationship with Rocky. A timeless story about the pursuit of the great American dream, capitalized. Wow. Uh, Rocky has universal appeal that is unsurpassed. Okay. <laughs> a lot of hyperbole there. I, I you know, yeah, I, mean, I don't know if it's yeah, slightly hyper, hyperbolic, but it does what it says on the tin. Mm-hmm. It knows what it is and it executes on that premise perfectly. I kind of admire the fact that it's not trying to do everything in a kettle of fish. Like it it's just mm-hmm. it is essentially this simple story about a simple man. It's pretty efficient in its storytelling. You know, it, it, there's not a lot of scenes in this movie where I'm like, I, mm-hmm. look, th- you're not going to hear this often from me on this show. There's not a lot of scenes in this movie that I would say we could lose this. This is not a movie yeah. where I went away being like, oh, this could have this stood to lose 10 or 15 minutes. Like, it's very, well, very yeah. efficient. I mean, look, it's a 98-page script. Directed by an editor. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so yeah, it's like, it is, you're right. It's very, very efficient, but it also leaves enough room to have character moments and have mm-hmm. things that are really just about world building, but it is, everything counts. Every one of those little juicy pieces is important to the movie and doesn't feel like extra, I think. Absolutely. Okay, well, before we get too deep into the weeds here, can you sort of give me a little bit of background on how this film came to be? Because I think this is the thing that is going to maybe be surprising to people who, certainly if you don't already know the story of how Rocky came to be. Later in life, I discovered this, but, you know, I just sort of assumed, you know, Sylvester Stallone is one of those characters who's been around forever. I didn't realize for many years that he wrote this movie. And then directed multiple sequels to this movie. What's his story? How does Rocky go from just a little idea on the page to this global phenomenon? So, I mean, this is the thing about Rocky is that it is incredibly tied up with Sylvester Stallone's story and his Mm. sort of myth in a lot of ways. Even before this film opened, the marketing of the film really positioned it as an American classic and really was all about emphasizing Sylvester Stallone's story. Cause he was a lot like Rocky. He okay. was this actor who hadn't quite made it. He was in an indie picture called the Lords of Flatbush. Okay. Um, but other than that, he wasn't really doing a lot of serious film work, certainly not what he wanted to do. And so he was sort of inspired to write this script after seeing uh, a fight between Muhammad Ali and Chuck Wepner, who was sort of this underdog who fought him and went the distance, right? Mm. And after he saw that, he wrote the script in like three and a half days. Wow. And the key part of the story is that then he starts shopping around the script 
but he is adamant that he has to play the lead role Mm. because basically it's like he wanted a vehicle for his acting career and he really wrote the character to be as he would say later in interviews it's basically just him in boxing shorts (laughs) Right. right his plight is the exact same as rocky's he's a guy who never quite had a break but has it in him to go the distance and just needs that one thing to sort of put him over the top. And for for Stallone, Rocky, the movie, is that thing that puts him over the top. So studios, though, they were, like, interested in the script, and they would they would make offers to Stallone, but they wanted someone else to star because he was a nobody, basically. Right. So they had ideas like Ryan O'Neill... James Kahn, that one I think oh. is actually kind of interesting for this wow, movie. I yeah. could I could see that. Burt Reynolds, <laughs> mm. Robert Redford. L- legitimately huge stars at the time. Like 1976. Totally. Those are the biggest names out there. Yep. Yep. And United Artists made an offer to him originally, but they wanted someone else to play the role. And Stallone would just keep turning them down again and again and again. And so eventually, Erwin Winkler and Robert Cardiff at United Artists, they express interest and they are kind of on board with the idea of Stallone starring in it. So they actually go to United Artists and they decide to use this provision in their contract that they can make uh, uh, any movie they want if it's under, I think, $1.5 million. Right? Okay. So United Artists comes back and they say, actually, this is really a $2 million picture. And they're thinking like, okay, great. Well, we'll get the movie, but then we'll get to cast whoever we want. Winkler and Cardoff don't go for that. Right. They come back and they say, all right, look, we'll do it for $1 million, not 1.5. And we will guarantee any additional funding to ensure that it's completed. And United Artists agrees to that, and Stallone gets to star in the film, basically. Wow. It's this kind of, like, legendary Hollywood story, and, again, immediately becomes part of the marketing for this movie, is the sort of bootstrap story of how it gets made. So, Avildsen, John G. Avildsen, who we've talked about before on this podcast, he's the director of the Karate Kid trilogy. And it sounds like it's quickly becoming one of Nate's favorite filmmakers. I I mean, he's just a really interesting character. It's hard to not root for him because he's also kind of a Rocky character in a lot of ways. He's a guy who, like before this, had made a few movies that did pretty well. He he made a movie called Joe. He made a movie called Save the Tiger. Both of them got Oscar nominations for screenplay and, and actually... Uh, Jack Lemmon won for best actor in a lead role for Save the Tiger, but nothing for the filmmaking side of it. Right. But he was, you know, he's sort of in the picture before that. He did a lot of like exploitation movies that were sort of like sex comedies and things like that. The kind of thing Uh, that Stallone was starring in prior to this. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, the same sort of world. And but Rocky is the movie that is really probably his best known and also best loved movies that he's worked on right this is really his big break in a lot of ways even though he had a long long career filmmaking you know we'll come back to ableton uh, a bunch later probably (laughs) but he basically gets brought onto this because two things he knows how to make low budget movies that have big multipliers he has a great track record of that and he agreed to all the terms he was like yes stallone fine sure and yeah, a million dollars, sure, no problem, I can do that. 
So that's basically like all they wanted. And, and that's what they got from Ableton. So this movie gets, it is a 28 day shoot. So very wow. compressed. Ableton did this basically by doing a whole bunch of rehearsal up front. So like mm. the fight scene, all of the heavy acting scenes, all of that is done up front. We talked about this in the Karate Kid episode, but he also carries this eight millimeter camera with him everywhere. So as early as the auditions, Ableton's already shooting footage on his eight millimeter camera, testing out angles, testing out how it looks and feels. So he's he's doing a lot of work up front to make the most of that 28 day shoot. So that's that's very cool. Okay, well, let's actually like tuck into the movie itself and dissect certain elements where should we start our conversation nate because there's i think there's a lot to unpack here yeah for sure so uh how about we start with adam did you like the movie (laughs) (laughs) i thought we saved that for the end um yeah yeah i did i mean i'm not gonna lie to you i mean it's it's interesting i don't think i loved the movie but -hmm. i think i was surprised by the movie when it started, I was a little bit worried that I was like, oh, dear, like, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and it was the scene at the ice rink where I was mm-hmm. like, OK, OK, I think I get this now because Rocky is kind of a dullard. He's kind of like a dope. He's just yep. like this goofball. I don't want to call him a loser because that feels unkind based on where we go but like he is portrayed as kind of just this like schlubby loser he talks like this and you don't what do you want man and like and you're just sort of like this is my hero this is who i'm gonna be rooting for by the end of this (laughs) and and then something just sort of clicks you know there's a few scenes that sort of set him up early in the film he goes back to his boxing gym and his locker's been taken away from him and, you know, Burgess Meredith refers, he's a bum. And um, <laughs> there's the scene relatively early on where he goes back to the pet store where Adrian works. And it's at night and he's like, oh, you want me to walk you home? You know, there's a lot of creeps out there. And uh, they're setting him up to be this like beefy, like giant of a man, but like clearly with the brain of a like a toe. <laughs> Gentle giant maybe is the mm-hmm. appropriate appropriate term i think the part of the thing is that there's like 20 save the cat moments in the first <laughs> yeah. 15 oh minutes God. of this movie absolutely of just like rocky you know giving advice to kids and talking to his <laughs> pets and not breaking the guy's thumbs and they're just like hammering you again and again with this idea of like he's a good guy he's a good mm-hmm. guy he's mm-hmm. a good guy um and, and, and not only that like yeah. i feel like we've been discussing it the most this season But this idea of like having to watch these movies with a modern eye thinking back to what was it like for audiences in 1976? Because again, I'm watching this knowing Sylvester Stallone of 2023, who is very different than Sylvester Stallone of 1973. Like he is successful. He's not an underdog. He's like one of the most successful action stars of the last few decades, right? Like it's him, Mm -hmm. Arnold you know the rock jason statham like it's the expendables Expendables. he's the head of the expendables he's mr expendable so you know the idea of him being an underdog is a little kind of like hard to take and it seems like well the way that we're supposed to buy this is that he's like playing it like he's a bit of a dope but then you get to that ice rink scene 
And yeah. I, I like, I don't know what it was. Cause I even, I also wrote down too. like, uh, one of my notes was, Oh, I guarantee you at some point, Adrian's going to take those glasses off and Oh my gosh, there's a beautiful yeah. woman under there. And, sh- and oh like, my God, that's Talia Shire. <laughs> yeah. Like, and they, <laughs> and they do that joke. And, yeah. uh, it was funny. My wife was eating dinner while I was watching it and she's like, what the hell is wrong with these two people? Like, and I was like, I don't know. Like, I think she's just shy and he's a bit of a dope. Well, there was a great sort of moment in the the commentary for the film where Talia Shire was talking about her choices with the character. Right. And basically what she was saying is like, look, Rocky is a big cartoonish character. And so she felt that in order for it to work, she had to also have a sort of cartoonish or not cartoonish, but big character Absolutely. sort of thing yeah, right yeah, so yeah. she's she's got the cat eye frames she's very extremely mousy what i was thinking to myself watching these performances and the other performances too like polly and mickey and all of these characters they're all kind of like eleanor rigby people you know <laughs> they're like these kind of sad forgotten broken lonely people like you know they're not necessarily bad people that but none of them got a break in life And that kind of also affected their personalities, right? They've like lived with being on the outs and it's affected the way they are. Polly is so angry and Mickey's angry and Adrian is incredibly shy. And Rocky, the thing that makes him special is he's the only one who maybe has a little bit of a spark of hope and and honestly, and corniness. This is, I think, the saving grace of the movie in some ways is that He's the only one who's corny and everyone in the world of the movie knows he's a corny guy. Yeah. I mean, that being said, it's funny that the film is sort of able to over overcome its. I don't know if tropiness is the right word, but like these characters Mm -hmm. are caricatures like they are like like you said, Adrian's a cartoonish level of mousiness and Polly's a cartoonish level of drunken, jealous best friend and mickey's a cartoonish level of you know gruff manager and i was surprised at how little mickey actually came into play i thought he was going to be yeah a, a lot of a bigger part of this and he really isn't and then of course like apollo creed is literally a cartoon character like his entrance <laughs> into the fight could not be more cartoonish i mean it literally felt like yeah. something ripped out of a simpsons episode but the magic of the film is that despite the fact that like none of this should work like, I think that's ultimately what I was right. thinking was like, none yes. of this should work. This should be a comically terrible movie that was, you know, laughed out of theaters and people should have come away from it being like, what a piece of shit this was. And yet it's <laughs> able to overcome all of its shortcomings mm-hmm. because it's got a lot of heart. And I don't know, like, maybe it's the softy in me. Maybe it's just the fact that I admire the authenticity of that heart but Mm -hmm. i think that's part of it is that none of it comes across as inauthentic it's clearly written by someone who's new to the art of writing film but that Mm -hmm. has a really really simple strong message and is doing so authentically this is not ironic it's not postmodern it's no i'm gonna tell this story of a guy down on his luck who overcomes it has this opportunity and ultimately doesn't necessarily succeed, but that doesn't matter to him because to him, he's one. And like, yeah, there's an earnestness there that I admire. And 
can't help but come away from enjoying. No, totally. I I think there are like a couple factors that are so critical to that working. And one of them, I think, is the era that this comes in, right? So Mm. this movie comes out in 1976. And everything that's come before it in the previous decade is new Hollywood, right? Right. This sort of idea of the Hollywood Renaissance. You have this new generation of of people uh, that are bringing certain things to the table. The studio system is has been flipped on its head. So you have actors, writers, and directors really running the show in terms of the authorial intent. And you get movies that are reflective of that, right? That are challenging, that are naturalistic, that are just trying new things. Uh, it's, it's Dog Day Afternoon. It's Bonnie and Clyde. It's all of those those sorts of movies, right? Yeah. And this movie, in a lot of ways, comes at the very tail end of that which I think is this really interesting moment. You know, is this part of New Hollywood, that whole vibe, or is this the beginning of something new? You know, Mm, and I I think it's kind of right on the cusp of that. It's right before you get Star Wars and and other things like that that really kind of change it back in a different direction, the sort of Hollywood blockbuster era, Spielberg and Lucas kind of running the show and that being the focus of all the studios. But at the same time, I think that this movie, in my opinion, is also kind of a direct response to some of those movies of this era because it is so optimistic. Mm. The sort of tricky balance that it's trying to play with is that on one hand, it is very optimistic. It's almost a a throwback to like Frank Capra. It is very Capra-esque. Another person we've covered, of course, on the podcast, we we watched It's a Wonderful Life. John G. Avildsen really looked to Capra as like a real inspiration for his kind of filmmaking. And I think that that story in Sylvester Stallone's script was very appealing to him, partly because it sort of resonates with Capra's uh, Mm -hmm. sensibilities, right? I actually found this great interview from 1977 in the New York Times where they talked to Capra and he said that he thinks Rocky is the best picture of the last 10 years Um, It got his vote for the Oscars all the way down the line. And when he saw it, he thought, boy, that's a picture I wish I had made. Wow. Well, it's interesting, too, though, because like being Canadian, I must admit my my knowledge of American history is not ideal. So maybe I'm completely off base. But I noticed that one of the other top films of this year was one of my all time favorites, All the President's Men, which Mm. is obviously about nixon and watergate and so knowing that this is coming out post nixon era america when right. there's probably a i would have to imagine if only based on how things have felt for us in the last few years coming out of a era of a president that maybe oh how do you put it uh not so good um <laughs> you know like i have to imagine that a film like this is kind of resonating in a way because it's speaking to an audience that maybe is looking for something like this because, Mm -hmm. you know, the mid seventies is a very sort of difficult time. Vietnam war is coming to an end, but like a lot of change is happening. And I feel like, again, like you say, the sort of new Hollywood, like there is this sort of undercurrent in that cinema of like this dark and grittiness of a French connection or a dog day afternoon. And a movie like this mm-hmm. that is that is just trying to like root for the underdog and 
like you say, have this happy, optimistic ending is probably mm-hmm. kind of refreshing. Yeah, totally. And I think the way it gets away with that in the context of a world that is, you know, a pretty troubling place in a bunch of ways is that it is using the language of New Hollywood to tell a Frank Capra story. Right. Right. All of the acting is incredibly naturalistic. Again, big cartoony characters in certain ways, but the way they play them is like, you know, so straight. Lots of improvisation, very rooted in these very naturalistic performances. Like Burt Young, um, he like, you know, went, I believe, to the acting workshop before that, he had no experience in acting. He had, like, a criminal record. And he, like, went and begged and said, please train me. <laughs> he right? looks He looks it. I Like, not to be unkind, but, like, he has that great character actor look mm-hmm. of, like, he looks like he literally was just picked up off the s- streets and was thrown into this movie and yep. does a phenomenal job. Yeah, these are all method people. The cinematography, right? And the setting. It's like mm. they're shooting actually in Philadelphia, they had no onset lighting mm. for most, wow. for, especially for the outdoor stuff. They're right. shooting in daylight. And, you know, again, I think this is where John G. Abelson's skills sort of come perfectly into frame, so to speak. It's <laughs> like the guy's shooting on eight millimeter all the time. He's, he's paying yeah. attention to light conditions. He's used to shooting in naturalistic settings. You know, he's working with a cinematographer, but like he has an eye for understanding how this is all going to work in a context that's maybe not ideal. And yeah. so it looks like Dog Day Afternoon, you know, yeah, I, it, it, it really it's funny. I invoked the French connection because it has that sort of Friedkin-esque mm-hmm. documentary realism to it that especially now a lot of filmmakers try to achieve, but very few filmmakers actually manage to achieve that sort of feeling of almost like a fly on a wall verite style that, you know, it's fiction, but like. If you were to then be told like, oh, no, we actually just kept the cameras rolling and nobody really knew what was going on at any point, like you kind of would believe it. There is this sort of realism to the cinematography and to the staging and the framing of everything that certainly elevates the script and and sort of takes it beyond those sort of cartoony elements, I think. If you were to film this in a more sort of proscenium style it would feel very stagey or cartoony and it wouldn't work. But when you combine it with that sort of documentary realism, it sort of balances all of that out. Yeah. I think the other thing that's interesting about this is that I think the script is quite conscious of what it's doing in that way. Mm. So like, you know, the big fight between Apollo Creed and Rocky is to celebrate the American bicentennial. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's a super conscious decision. Like, yes, of course, they were taking advantage of the fact that the bicentennial was coming. But at the same time, it's a fight about America. Mm. At one point, a reporter says to Apollo Creed, he's like, is it a coincidence that you're fighting a white man on the most celebrated day in the country's history? And Apollo sort of turns it on his head and he says, I don't know about that. Is it a coincidence that he's fighting a black man on the most celebrated day in the country's history, right? So there is this undercurrent of racial tension of, you know, I mean, like when Rocky's jogging through Philadelphia, it's like he's jogging through the Italian market. There's like burning trash cans. There's garbage. There's abandoned cars. Like 
this is happening in the middle of like, you know, putting on my, my urban history hat for a moment here. <laughs> this is happening in, in what we call like the urban crisis in America, where a combination of like policies at the federal level, like suburbanization that's supported by the federal government, highway construction, slum clearance, all this stuff basically leads to white flight and disinvestment in central cities. And Philadelphia, like, lost 13% of its population during the 1970s alone, but had wow. already been losing population before that. Jeez. So it's like, that's the context that this is happening in. And I actually think even though the script is very uplifting, the production's quite conscious of, I think, that whole context. Right. And is sort of referencing it in various ways and saying, look... I know the situation is bad. I know when you look around you, the country feels like it's falling apart sometimes. I know there's tension. But this story, at least, is trying to tell you the American dream is still viable and nobody can still make it in this country. Whether you believe that or not is a whole other thing. <laughs> but like that's, I think, really what this story is about, is like they're saying this is the bicentennial, this is a trial of the American dream, and the author is saying, yes, the American dream is still alive and well, or at least we can believe in it. I do want to dig more into Avildsen and his contributions because we've obviously <laughs> talked about him before. And I think having that context of his other arguably most successful film and this one will be interesting. But before we do, I do want to talk a little bit more about the cast um, yeah. because there's some really interesting casting going on here. And I'm going to pose this question to you. Mm hmm. Is Stallone a good actor? Because <laughs> I, I, I look, I liked the film. I liked his performance, but I'm not convinced yet. Um, yeah. And again, like I know he's still relatively new to all this. Certainly like he's appeared in other films. It was funny. I was looking at his filmography. He was an uncredited extra in some pretty heavy hitters. I'm just going to pull them mm -hmm. up here. Um, Downhill Racer. M.A.S.H. Uh, huh. Bananas, the Woody Allen movie. Oh, Clute, which mm -hmm. is a great. If I'm not mistaken, that's also a Alan J. Pacella. Yeah, Alan J. Pacella, who did uh, All the President's Men. What's Up, Doc? Mm -hmm. Which I think is on our short list of films to cover uh, with Barbara, Stry Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. So, like, he's been in some legitimate stuff. Um, yep. But this is obviously like his breakthrough role. I, I guess it's one of those things where it's tough to truly judge him because I'm not sure you said it yourself. Like he's playing Sylvester Stallone in boxing shorts. Like, is he acting or is he just delivering the lines? Like, I don't, I don't know. But so that's why I wanted to ask you, like, do you think he's a good actor? Yeah, I would say that this was the, the most important story he had to tell. Mm. And that he is the perfect person to play the role. Yes. And I would say, again, I've seen all of the Rocky movies, the whole series. I think he's very good in those movies. And I think that in some of the sequels, he has harder scenes to play. Like in this movie, he's basically Paddington Bear. <laughs> well, yeah, that's actually a really good analogy. We'll talk a little bit about Apollo Creed, but Apollo Creed is not the villain of this story. No. Apollo Creed is a foil to Rocky. They're actually similar characters who bounce off of each other. The villain of the story is cynicism. <laughs> is like the entire world is kind of against him. They're all so negative and always kind of like telling him he can't do it, 
telling him the world's a bad place and he's just kind of this corny guy in a cynical world. But in later movies, there's more conflict um, okay, yeah. between him and other characters. Rocky becomes a more imperfect character who makes mistakes. Mm. Um, he does have a chance to kind of flesh out the character and does it quite well, I think. That said, I don't think I've seen him in another role that I've liked him as much in. Right. The scene that comes to mind where I feel like you can see the inexperience. And again, he could beat the living shit out of me. So I just like, <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> all due respect. All due respect to the man. Um, though, you know, apparently he's a painter now. So maybe he's a much gentler. But the scene where Mickey comes to his house to basically mm-hmm. plead to be his manager, he sort of refutes him. And then after Mickey leaves, he kind of has a a monologue where he's beaten up the door of his bathroom and he's sort of saying, like, yeah, you know, yeah, my house stinks. Yeah, I got hard. Like, where were you 10 years ago? And he's like, kind of that scene kind of goes on maybe a little too long. But that's kind of the one scene where I was like, okay, I don't know that he necessarily has the chops to pull this off. Like, I've seen this scene in other movies Mm -hmm. and I think it's done better and it's the one scene where his inexperience sort of shows through um you know opposite to that like the scene i mentioned that sort of won me over the scene in the ice rink where it really just feels like you're witnessing this date between two people like it feels so authentic and so realistic and he's just sort of like talking and being this charming kind of doofus but also like yeah. opening up when she asked him why he wanted to fight and he's like well my dad told me i didn't have much of a brain so i better work on my body and then she gives the dev oh my god the devastating line of my mother said the opposite of like i didn't have yeah. much of a body yeah. so i better work on my brain and i was just like oh my god like what kind of a person tells their daughter that like yeah i and all the while you've got the zamboni guy like shouting in the background two minutes seven minutes <laughs> Like which you know yeah, just yeah, adds yeah. this sort of lightness to the scene. Um, I don't in know, reality it's... to the scene. Yeah, a lot of scenes like that in other movies become this sort of like too magical, too serious, too much connection, and it kind of forgets that like they're in the real world. And I love that the custodian of the <laughs> rink is like reminding them that they're running out of time. Like it's, it's just such a nice touch. Well, and it, it's again, I think it speaks to Abelson's skill as a director that he recognizes. Okay, this scene has it's bordering on saccharin like every time it's just getting to the edge where you're like oh is this gonna start to be too cheesy yep. that's when the zamboni breaks in and you have a little moment of levity and you're like okay yep. this is working for me oh i've got a whole take on this sir i will get there but <laughs> but going back to that scene between rocky and mickey i i wanted to say that i think the reason that that scene does work for me is because of burgess meredith because well the front he, half of the scene works for me it's when he mm, it's when mickey leaves that it doesn't work for me as but see that the thing that's great is that you, you're watching rocky freak out he comes into the bathroom he's yelling at, at mickey mickey's already gone but he's saying you know yeah where were you this place stinks etc cetera, etc cetera. and you, what you see is burgess meredith slowly walking down the stairs and you can feel mickey coming through from the back of that man's shoulders mm-hmm. you know what i mean like mm-hmm. he is just acting the hell out of that role and there's a moment i think where he turns around and you can just see this sort of yeah. conflicted look on his face yep. like yep. To, he is selling 
Stallone's performance in that scene for me. I love Burgess Meredith in this. Again, a big character, right? <laughs> Who's got a crazy voice. Every time I hear him talk or or see him with his like little snarl, I just I think of Mo. <laughs> oh, see, that's right? not who I think of. I mean, come on. I think of Burgess Meredith as the f***ing penguin in the 1960s well, Batman series. Sure. I am an aristocrat of crookery, my dear man. <laughs> the whole time well, I'm sure. Like, like, I just kept being like, this is insane that the penguin is now an 80-year-old man coaching Rocky. But like, No, 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 no. See, the, the insane thing is <laughs> that a leading man from the 1930s went on to play mickey and the penguin in the batman show okay fair enough fair <laughs> enough fair enough i mean and let's be clear burgess meredith is the least crazy thing of casting in the batman series in a show where <laughs> caesar romero refuses to shave his mustache to play the joker but don't worry folks we will eventually cover all the insanity of that of that on a later episode but yeah no i i mean burgess meredith was one of those things like i i, I was genuinely surprised at how little screen time he had because he's at the time, anyway, the one name in the film, like he gets the and right. Burgess Meredith credit. Maybe you knew him as the 1930s leading man or more likely you knew him as the penguin from Batman. And now in 2023, you recognize Carl Weathers and you you might recognize Talia Shire. But for him to be in this film so little, and I guess maybe part of that is because. Again, thinking about The Simpsons and the fact that Mo in that episode is like the mentor. And so I'm like, oh, the mentor character is going to be a lot bigger in this. And again, in the AFI 100, like all of the scenes that they show are like the training montage, the scenes with Burgess Meredith. So I just assume right. like, oh, most of this movie is going to be about Rocky gets this opportunity and then Burgess Meredith is going to take him under his wing and teach him everything he knows. But like, that's not what happens at all. And I was a little bit surprised by that. Like, like I said, he maybe has... I don't know, like 20 minutes of screen time, if that. Yeah. Well, see, the Simpsons connection is that the Mo character is much more of the Humphrey Bogart character, right. yeah, yeah, who's yeah. the main character of The Harder They right. Fall. Yes, yes, yes. And especially in that movie, in the final fight, Bogey has a change of heart. It's exactly what happens in that episode. But like, yeah, it's funny, again, how those parodies kind of skew our expectations of how these movies are going to work. Before we move on, I do want to touch again on Talia Shire, because I think she yeah. gives a very underrated performance. Um, totally. It's interesting that you say that she was like that she thought about how to portray this character and that like Rocky is this cartoon. So she has to play it car almost cartoonish. Because, again, when you're first introduced to her, she is comically mousy, comically bookish. I as I said, I wrote down, oh, they're going to do the reveal where she, like, takes off her hat and glasses. And, oh, my God, yeah, she's yeah. beautiful. But the thing that's so astonishing is that this role could not be further from Connie Corleone. Like, if yeah. you know her, that's the only other movie I've seen her in is Godfather and Godfather mm -hmm. 2. And I think she's also maybe in Godfather 3. I can't remember if she's in Godfather 3 or if her character's dead. But certainly Godfather 1 and 2 she's in and plays such a different character. Such a big yeah. character. The, the famous scene in Godfather 1. The, the scene that essentially allowed Coppola to, to keep his job where, where she's like throwing the <laughs> plates and, and beating up her, her husband um, after finding out that he's that he's been stepping out on her like that's such a big performance a character with so much rage and energy and this yeah. is so reserved and so dialed back i think it really is maybe my favorite performance 
kids in the film. Although Bert sure. Young might maybe give her a run for her money. He's and, also excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's well, the thing about this movie is that like it is such a horse race in terms of what the best performance is like all of the main actors are doing a pretty great job. You can kind of debate about Stallone, but like he's so well cast that regardless of whether you think he's the best actor in the world, he's kind of perfect for the role, you know, and then like the other four characters, I think are just killing it. Right. Tolly Shire, Burt Young, Carl Weathers and Burgess Meredith. It's like, they're all just killing it in these roles. The four sort of supporting roles are so strong. They kind of prop up, the ineffectiveness for lack of a better term of the lead it's funny it reminds me of seinfeld in a weird way mm. because the thing that i've always said about seinfeld is like jerry is the worst of the bunch he's a right. he's a terrible actor you could take him out of the show and the show would still absolutely work because right. kramer elaine and george are so good at what they're doing and they crop him up and they allow him to act as sort of the straight man and so on and so forth so it's like this classic thing of like yes he's technically the lead but it's the supporting characters that allow his lead performance to work. And I think this is another perfect case of that, of like Stallone for all of his strengths and all of his weaknesses, his performance works because the other performances are also working so well with all of those other performances surrounding him. It allows for the sort of less polished performance to work. Sure. Yeah, no, I buy that. This is very much an ensemble in some ways, even though, Obviously, it's like, yeah, the movie's called Rocky and and <laughs> yeah. the, the climax is about Rocky and his fight. This really would not work if you didn't have such a stellar ensemble, like pulling it all together. Totally. But that said, I do want to talk about the director, about John G. Avildsen. Yes. Uh, and what is he bringing to the table in this? Because here's my hot take on this movie. I think that. His role in the success of this movie is totally underrated mm -hmm. and that because of the way this movie was marketed, we maybe give Stallone too much credit. I mean, look, the, the guy wrote the script. It's his idea. It's his character. He stars in it, obviously, and carried the, the franchise after this movie. However, <laughs> I would argue that the things you think of when you think of Rocky are actually largely due to John G. Abelson's contributions. Mm. So from that, I would love to like take you on a tour of the rest of this movie from some key moments, and we can talk about each of them and John G. Abelson's contributions, but also just what you thought about them. So absolutely, one of the first things that you already brought up was the skating uh, scene, which is sort of the first date between right. Rocky and Adrian. Basically, the, the setup is it's Thanksgiving, they had this horrible fight with Polly, which is funny, but also awful, where he like takes the turkey out of the oven that Adrian was, yeah. was cooking and throws it out the door and then sort of casually asks Rocky if he wants a piece. You know, so anyway, <laughs> Rocky takes her out on a date, but it's Thanksgiving, so everything's closed. So he goes to the skating rink. He basically talks the custodian into letting them onto the rink for a short period of time to skate around. Super, super sweet. In the script, this was written as a coffee date. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Stallone wrote it as they just have a conversation at a diner or something. And Avildsen said, look, that's really boring. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
there's nothing worse than just watching two people like talk with nothing else going on. Mm-hmm. They should be doing something like bowling or whatever. I don't know, something. And so they come up with the idea of the rink and Stallone goes back and he writes it as, okay, they're going to go to the skating rink and there's going to be lots of people and it's going to be like all this sort of stuff. And Ableton's like, look, we don't have the budget for that. <laughs> <laughs> so Ableton is like, maybe it's closed. Mm. And so that whole setup, which again, I think is part of the magic of that scene. You know, it's kind of awkward. It's makeshift. They're not having this sort of uninterrupted magical moment. It's like, it feels very grounded in reality. Well, he's not even wearing skates. Like he's not wearing skates. You're not going to wear skates. No, 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 (laughs) of course not. (laughs) He's just jogging next to her on the the ice. Um, Yeah. It's like all of those details that make it specific and memorable. Yeah. Ableton. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like that is what makes that scene so special and so unique is that it is this sort of like fish out of water. They're at a skating rink and he's not wearing skates and like there's nobody Mm -hmm. else there. And the the, the Zamboni is like, that's seven minutes. Like it's yeah. yeah, And that's what turned you around on the movie. That is literally the scene that won me over. I think prior to that, I was like, okay, this is fine. But I'm like, okay. And then that scene was the one that, from that point on, I was I was sold. Yeah, exactly. So this is jumping ahead a little bit. So stop me if I'm moving too quickly. Mm. But let's talk about the training montage. So this is probably the most parodied thing about this movie. Easily the most iconic moment of the film. Arguably one of the most iconic moments of 70s film history. Yeah, all of film history, (laughs) honestly. Honestly. And I was trying to like look deep into this and be like, look, is there a precedent for this? Where did this come from? Whose idea was it? How was it developed? Surprisingly, there isn't actually that much about this Hmm. other than, you know, like lists of the greatest top 10, you know, whatever. Training montages, yeah, yeah. Training montages. I found one that does talk about there's also a training montage in Taxi Driver actually which is maybe even the same year but it's not a sports film number one and it's not quite the same vibe i think i i I would i think it's safe to say it is a very different vibe nathan (laughs) yeah exactly not be more different arguably but but i do actually think that maybe the sort of famous line from that movie of like you looking at me is maybe part of the sort of training montage sequence in that movie but like before that I can't find much about any kind of equivalent montage moment in a movie. Right. I, you know, so I'm always hesitant to say this is the first because there's always something before this, but it it brings together these elements in a very unique way where it's like, it's a montage. So it's not a scene. It's definitely using the film medium, right? It's got a bespoke song for the montage that's written for that scene. And the sort of arc of it is this idea of getting stronger, right? Right. They're going to fly now. He's going to fly now. Right. I'm going to fly now. So that section is sort of sketched out very loosely in the script. But the idea of making it a montage is Avildsen. Ah, okay. And and so he started cutting it because, again, he's an editor, right? So he starts cutting it. He gets a track from Conti, which we haven't even talked about. We have to talk about the music. But he gets a track from Conti. And then he's like, you know what? I'm really liking this footage. I need some more music. 
So he goes back mm. to Conti and he gets another 30 seconds and then he keeps cutting. And then he's like, I have too much footage. I still need more. He goes back to Conti, asks for another 30 seconds. And so it stretches from like a couple minutes to like much, much longer. Right. And it becomes what we think of as this training montage. And I feel like you'd only get that from a director that also thinks like an editor yeah. and is able to create a tight loop between an editor and a composer. Right. Yeah in order to create this very unique thing. That feedback loop seems really important to developing the, the unique training montage of Rocky. So again, that moment that is so iconic to this movie, so iconic to film history, is, I think, coming out of mostly this relationship between John G. Avildsen and Conti, not Sylvester Stallone, you know? It's also fascinating, yeah. too, because as we've said in other episodes, when you see these movies that have been parodied to death or referenced to death mm -hmm. or like had major influences. Sometimes the original thing can feel a little bit dated or yeah. not as effective as the subsequent versions. And I think mm -hmm. what was so remarkable is that the training montage has been done to death. It's been parodied, you know, team America world police has that great yeah. montage song. Rocky had a but somehow this didn't feel like it was dull, like it didn't feel mm -hmm. derivative. Obviously, it's not derivative, but it doesn't have that feeling of like, oh, this, this has been done subsequently and done better. Like it still feels fresh and not cliched because I think the training montage becomes sort of a cliche that like, yeah, oh, like, how are we going to we got to do a lot in very little time. OK, like cut to well, the montage, cut to the montage. I like, mean, even within the Rocky series, it becomes a cliche, right? Right. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, it becomes a compulsory thing that has to be in the movie. I think one of the secrets of this one that makes it work so well is that there's almost a rehearsal of the training montage earlier in the movie, right? Yes. There's the scene where he wakes up. It's really early. He drinks six raw eggs. <laughs> Absolutely disgusting. And then he goes out on a jog. And it's, I think it is brilliant where you have Conti's score. It's, it's the sort of slower, sadder version of that score. This is one of the brilliant things about it is that the theme really works either as a very like slow, sad piano sort of thing, mm -hmm. or as this big booming, get those horns in there sort of yeah. score. And so he's got the sad version on. It feels like it's sort of slowly building momentum. You see him running through the streets of Philadelphia. He goes up the stairs of the Philadelphia Art Museum. And struggles. out of breath. Yep. He's struggling. Yep. He's got a cramp. He mm -hmm. barely makes it up. And then, mm -hmm. he, and then you watch him walk back down the stairs. Yep. And it's like, I think that that is why the, the later montage works. Because you've seen him do this before. And it was sad and hard. And now he's doing it again and you get to see him really make it and be yeah. excited and, yeah. and all of that. I mean, it's just, it works, man. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's one of those things that, again, it's, it's the scene that was played in the AFI 100 is used in clip shows, right. is used in like other Oscar montages, the, a montage mm -hmm. of a montage, arguably one of the most iconic moments in cinema history. And yet when you see it in context, you're like, yeah, like this, this, yeah, do this, it. This you're rules, like, yeah, you're gonna fly. I'm gonna fly now. Like, it works. You understand how that becomes the thing that everybody else starts 
ripping off because it's so well executed. Yeah, and I think you're right. Seeing him go from barely able to make it up those steps to literally skipping multiple steps at once and then cheering himself on at the end. It's like it's it's so, so incredibly effective. Yeah, totally. And of course, this is the scene that is parodied in two of the other Simpsons episodes that right. we talked about at the very beginning. Brush with greatness. Krusty gets canceled. You both get references to this training montage of Krusty punching a giant side of beef <laughs> and Homer doing a sort of training montage in the sort of gray sweatsuit, of course, that Rocky famously wears in this scene. On a similar note, and this is sort of part of the montage, as well as other parts of the movie, is the use of steady cam in this mm. movie. Right. So this is one of the first movies to use Steadicam at all. The mm-hmm. only one before this was Hal Ashby's Bound for Glory. That's oh, it. Interesting. And so Steadicam was not even a patented technology at the time. <laughs> oh, wow. And John G. Avildsen saw the demo reel for Steadicam from Garrett Brown, who is the inventor. Yep. And it actually includes a shot going up the Philadelphia Art Museum steps because Uh, Garrett Brown was a Philadelphia guy. And so he was using it to demonstrate, like, look how smooth this is, even going up steps, right? Because of the gyroscope and all of that. Right. And so, like, Avildsen saw it and was not only interested in the technology, he's like, where are those steps? (laughs) So, like, you know, again, like, he's bringing that to the table. Steadicam's really interesting in this movie. Like, one of the things that Garrett Brown points out in the commentary is that he uses it very sparingly at first, and Avildsen sort of introduces it more and more throughout the movie. Right. And it becomes part of the sort of momentum of the film, of, like, when he's jogging, right? Especially in that montage. And then in the final fight, there's a lot of steady cam. They right. shot every round of the fight, both in the ring and outside of the ring, using steady cam as well as other stuff, in right. order to get that kind of dynamism in the fight. So, like he had the foresight to kind of take a gamble on this new technology and it really becomes part of the vocabulary of how this movie looks. And of course how every movie looks now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the thing watching it in 2023, you can kind of take for granted that, Oh yeah. Like of course there's steady cam shots, but it's like, no, like that was not a thing prior to this. And it gives Mm -hmm. the film a very, very different look. It's interesting because I think most people, myself included, always associate the shining with steady cam and i think there's that myth that like oh that was the first steady cam movie I, I didn't realize that it was in fact rocky so that's really interesting and that avildsen was the one that was pushing for it too it makes it even more interesting yeah totally um yeah i mean they were like the early adopters and there's i feel like there was sort of subsequent films that popularized it too like right. I, I you know i mean the hal ashby one is before this but like didn't popularize it yeah but rocky because it was this sort of breakout hit i think sort of helps popularize it and then of course the shining further popularizes it right moving along in the story basically everything around that final fight Mm. is very driven by avildsen in many ways so again the night before in the script (laughs) rocky watches footage of apollo creed fighting right and realizes he's not going to be able to beat him basically of course, that's not what happens in the film. No. Avildsen is, is like, he should go to the ring. And I think, you know, part of this is probably like, look, we don't need another set. We don't want to get the footage. Like, we don't have the budget. Right. We already have the ring set up. 
like just have him go to the set basically <laughs> and the sets and the set can be empty because it's nighttime so he goes there and he you know is looking around the ring and he looks at the big paintings right he sees apollo creed and then he sees himself and then the promoter comes in and he's talking to the promoter and he's like hey the the poster's not right i'm wearing whatever it is red which, red which colors you white, remember the red color. trunks with the white stripe but i wear white trunks with the red stripe right or whatever right, right. the line is yeah so fun fact that was not in the script no. <laughs> what happened was the artist <laughs> up okay and they actually painted rocky's poster wrong and Abelson was like no problem we'll just write it into the script amazing and it actually it works even better because it just shows no one cares about Rocky and the promoter's line back to him is perfect. He's like, well, it doesn't really matter now, does it? No, exactly. It's yeah, no, that's perfect. such a it just, great it's such a great moment. Yeah, it puts a button on the exact theme that that scene is supposed to be selling, which is uh, not only is Rocky not going to win, but also no one cares anyways. You yeah. know, he's still a loser, even though he has put in all this training he's not going to come out a winner. That scene is iconic to this movie and, and not at all how it's written in the script. Oh. And then, of course, the big fight. So the fascinating thing about this is, again, it's in the script in the sense that they fight in the script, <laughs> but the details of what happens, not in there at all, basically. Right. I mean, it's interesting because you said that the script was 98 pages and what they tell you in film school or whatever is like each page is the equivalent of a minute. So that means right. that the film in theory would only be 98 minutes long, which it is not. It is just shy of two hours. So obviously yeah. there's moments throughout where they're adding stuff that's not necessarily on the page. And it makes sense that the fight would be one of those things. I remember I interviewed the writer of the first mission impossible movie. And that has one of my all time favorite set pieces of any movie that the Langley heist where, you know, mm -hmm. they basically they they have to steal the, the knock list. And I asked him, I was like, so what does that look like on the page? Because like I know for for the script for Scream, when Kevin Williamson was writing it, there were certain sections where he would be like, OK, this is what needs to happen. But I'm just going to write, you know, Wes will make it scary. Like he would write out the sort of like <laughs> right A to B to C Wes will figure it out. Uh, and right. I was like, what was your approach? Like, is everything scripted there? Or was it one of those mm -hmm. things of like, here's A to B to C and Brian De Palma will do the Brian De Palma thing and it will be very tense and very exciting. Um, so I'm always fascinated by this idea of like, how do set pieces like this look on the page? Are they elaborately scripted out like beat by beat by beat by beat? Or is it more like, and they fight? Right. So it sounds right. like that is maybe sort of what happened here. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think there was sort of the the broad strokes of like probably what happens in each round, but not right. like the details. And basically, Avildsen was like he went back and watched a bunch of earlier films, like The Harder They Fall, right. you know, old boxing movies. And basically, the conclusion he came to was like these all look like crap. The fights <laughs> look phony. Right. They just don't feel like a real boxing match. He also watched like actual boxing matches, and so what he wanted to do was he was like, we're going to do something that, to my knowledge, has not been done before, which is we're going to choreograph the whole fight front to back like a ballet. Mm. And then we're going to rehearse the hell out of it so that it can actually be done front to back and shot front to back. Mm. And so that's how they did it. And he basically said, Sylvester, 
I need you to go and basically write out every beat of this fight, literally every punch, like what is happening. He's choreographing the whole fight. So Stallone goes back and does that. They bring it into the rehearsal and they rehearse it for like six weeks. And of course, meanwhile, Ableton's in there with his eight millimeter camera, (laughs) capturing footage, figuring out all of the angles, and then also showing the footage back to the actors to be like, look, this isn't working. You need to do this better. You need to train harder before they actually do the final shoot. And they shot the fight at the very, very end of the production. So they're Mm. kind of doing this concurrently with the rest of the shoot. So already a pretty innovative approach to this. And I think it really shows in that scene. Again, it's so hard to detach this from like what we're so used to now. Because now this is like what everything looks like. Yeah, exactly. But but it's like if you go back and watch those older movies, it's completely different, right? Like this changed the whole language of like what a boxing match looks like on film. Other than the fact that you're in the ring, it looks like a real fight. Like there are very few moments where you're like, oh, that's really phony. It looks like they're getting the crap beat out of them for the most part. This is this is a question that I probably should have asked. We're an hour and 35 minutes into the recording. Probably should have asked uh, an hour ago. Was <laughs> Stallone a boxer? Like, did he have experience as a boxer? And that's what, like, prompted him to do that? Or that was something he picked because he was like, oh, I can make a narrative around this. Like, wh- how did the whole, like, boxing element come into play here? Because for you to say, like, that Abelson went and said, like, I need you to to write out beat by beat. Like, I imagine he would have to be pretty knowledgeable about boxing but was he uh yeah to my knowledge he is not a fighter okay interesting um he did a lot of training he did like five months of training with a boxer for this movie right um but like to my knowledge no he's not a boxer so it's not like one Um, of those things of like a you know guy Ritchie movies did this a lot where they would like find like football stars and then like make them actors or whatever but like that's not the case here he just no, Interesting. he's always, okay. I mean, he's, I think he's always wanted to be an actor before this. And this just was inspired by that fight. He was just like, this is the right vehicle to tell the story Interesting. of my plight as a person and just kind of transpose it onto boxing. Cause maybe okay. that's more exciting than watching someone fail at auditions or something. Yeah. A um, little bit. It's a little more yeah. cinematic maybe, but yeah. Okay. Interesting. But that is really interesting that like, again, this movie hinges on this whole like element of it. And you know, after all this sort of down talking i did of stallone like he is believe uh, now maybe actual boxers would disagree but to someone who knows <laughs> jack shit about about boxing he and carl weathers are certainly very believable in their portrayal as professional boxers although i yeah, will say totally. there were a couple shots and maybe it's just because i'm watching like a 4k version of the film there were a couple shots where i wasn't really clear whether or not like they were supposed to be landing shots or if they were missing, like I was paying close attention to the commentators to try and be like, okay, was that him missing on purpose or like, so it was a little unclear at times, but it ultimately like when all is said and done, it was pretty clear again, because the commentators were like, Oh, they're really, he's really going for the ribs or, Oh, he's, yeah, he's yeah. not letting go. And like, so, yeah, I think that usually the tell is that they talk about this on the commentary is that like one of the key things to selling this is the head snap. Mm. so whenever you see the head snap they're supposed to be landing the punch basically okay well and Um, it's interesting we talked about it a lot in our king kong episode the idea of like sound and the importance of sound in a in mm -hmm. to all of this i think that's the one element here that maybe it doesn't sound like how i feel like one of these fights would sound today like it's very muted in its sound effects like again and and again i don't know enough about boxing to know what it actually sounds like you know 
boxing gloves hitting flesh. But I feel like you kind of expect the sort of over the top sound effects and like it doesn't do that, which is probably to its credit. But like there were just certain moments where it wasn't entirely clear was a blow landing or not because I didn't have that more sort of like clear delineated sound effect or whatever. Yeah. The most famous example of this is obviously Raging Bull and, you know, Mm -hmm. that which is considered to be one of the best edited films ever. Um, yep. and how they deal with editing and sound of those fights is incredibly unique. But um... yes, yeah. Fun fun fact about that: the inventor of the Steadicam was also brought onto that film to yeah. shoot the fights, uh, but he was fired because his footage looked too much like Rocky. Oh well, there you go, <laughs> Marty. Yeah, it's like you know. I mean, and when I think about those fights, I don't think that there's almost any, if any at all. Uh, steady cam in it i think it's usually much more still yeah it's which it's, is yeah. part of the aesthetic of that of yeah that exactly film. it's got a very, very different take hyper stylized it's it's much yeah. less of this sort of this feels like it's a professionally filmed boxing match exactly know, whereas that feels like a hyper stylized artistic interpretation of a boxing match yeah totally that's one of the interesting things about the creed movies is that they i mean they they're the cinematography in those fights is pretty incredible but actually the most recent one creed 3 i believe they actually moved more in that stylized direction yeah i heard fight. he was using like dragon ball as a reference yeah, anime. point for his fights yeah which is super super exactly. super interesting yeah exactly and i think that was also shot in imax and i saw it in imax right. i mean it is pretty incredible to watch in that context really like nothing else you know this is why i love going to an imax movie you know the idea of of shooting figures and close-ups and all of that in imax is always really interesting to me rather than like big vistas which is what i think people usually think of so anyways but it's fun watching that sort of style evolve over time from you know abelson being like ah nothing's realistic we need to make it look like a real fight to you know raging bull being like we're going to go all the way in the other direction and make it hyper stylized yeah and now creed kind of maybe playing with a little bit of both yeah so the final thing that ableton really contributes is the ending (laughs) to this Mm. movie which again written completely differently originally i believe the crowd carries rocky out (laughs) on their shoulders uh and it's like a big you know satisfying moment and then at some point they changed that idea to be like wait a second no no one cares about rocky they should carry Apollo Creed out on their mm. shoulders and Rocky and Adrian will walk out to the parking lot together and it'll be more about them. They shot that ending. Oh. And then eventually they were like, no, this isn't quite right either. Why are we kind of going all the way out and, and like having this big denouement? And so again, it was Abelson who was sort of like, nope, we need to end it basically in the ring. And so they reshot the ending huh. and Again, one of the most famous moments of this movie is Rocky calling Adrian, Adrian right? Adrian! And yeah. Abelson gave Sylvester Stallone the direction for that line saying, you're like a wounded animal and you're looking for your mate, hmm. which is exactly what that sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. He was sort of inspired to do this because of Bill Conti's music as well, right? To think about this ending. So again, it's like Ableton and Conti, man. Yeah. And again, that sort of editing mentality in the directing is so much part of this movie's DNA. And I just don't think it gets enough credit for that. Um, So that's my big hot take. But have I convinced you? (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, uh, like I said, I I know very little about this movie going into it beyond it's Sylvester Stallone's Rocky. But by Mm -hmm. all accounts, 
yes, like he wrote it and he stars in it. But as is often the case with the sort of auteur theory, like it, films are not made by one person. It's kind of why yeah. I hate the auteur theory. I mean, yes, there are certain auteurs <laughs> out there, certainly. But even those auteurs, like they all rely on other people to make their art. You know, Wes Anderson stuff doesn't work without his production designers and his costume people. And, totally. uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino's films don't work without his editor. Yes. Granted, there are also those filmmakers who like they literally can do everything like the Coen brothers or like a Steven Soderbergh. But still, like it's still always a team effort. And the things I love most about this movie are not necessarily the things that Sylvester Stallone is bringing to the table. And it sounds like anyway, are absolutely the things that Abelson was bringing to the table. Yeah, I feel like in the story, you know, often it's sort of like I think literally in the commentary, Burt Young says something like, you know, the script was pure gold. So anything on top of that was just platinum. Evelson helped make it happen. He knew how to make a cheap movie, so we got him and he did it. But anyone and, could have taken the script and it would have worked. Right. And it's like, I actually don't totally buy that because there were so many creative contributions to the script and to the story and the way it was acted on set that like it really evolved a lot from that script to the screen. If it was shot as the script was written, I don't know if it would have worked. No, I, really I, I think the movie would have been dog shit. Like, I, not, <laughs> not, not to be rude, but like I said, the script is not really that strong. It's a simple mm-hmm. story, and I always admire simple film. Not everything has to be complicated. But the, as you pointed out, the scene that turned me around was not Sylvester Stallone's scene. It was the scene that the director eventually crafted and molded and and made work so yeah no i don't i don't think this movie works without that which again having not seen the sequels i'd be curious how the sequels fare without john g abelson at the helm which is maybe a perfect way to segue into what do you mean there's six rocky movies because (laughs) nothing about this movie screamed we gotta make another although i recognize how hollywood works Cheap right. little movie money makes, screamed yeah, that <laughs> yeah cheap little movie makes millions of dollars we gotta make more of these pictures um yeah pretty much pretty much i mean it's like literally in the final scene rocky and apollo are both you know no like, rematch all, there will be no rematch <laughs> there'll be no rematch i don't want one yeah that's literally like some of the last lines of the movie and yet there were so many of these rocky five plus rocky two equals Rocky 7, Adrian's Revenge! Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. How do these fare? I think, all due respect, I really love these movies. I I think they're a lot of fun. I do think they coast a lot on the tropes that are set out in this first movie. Mm. They play with them in interesting ways, but I think that, again, things like the, the training montage, not really in the script, not really Sylvester Stallone's invention. And yet every movie after that has a training montage and upping the stakes on the training montage becomes part of the game of this series. Right. So it's yeah, like yeah. there are things that are set out in this movie that really become just like the formula for the rest of these. They also evolve, you know, I mean, again, like I made the joke at the beginning about this not being a fight film and that, that being the sort of party line when they were promoting this. The other movies are definitely fight films, right? Right. They are all about a big fight and the next big sort of challenge for Rocky. 
and sort of like a new training regime and a new opponent. Like that's that's the sort so of they're basically James the Bond movies, but with boxing. They kind of become that. Yeah, totally, totally. There is a bit of that. They're very episodic. There's sort of some through lines, but you know you're going to get a certain arc throughout each movie. Right, kind of formulaic. Um, I think most people, when they use the term formulaic, they use it in a pejorative way, but like Bond movies are formulaic. Like they yeah. are, there's, there's a formula. formula it's a cold open, it's, you know, gun barrel, theme song, get into the, like, but that's what yep. you go for. It's like, I want the formula. Like I, that's what I'm here for. 100%. And, and the variations on the formula become part of the fun. How yeah, are they exactly. going to surprise they gonna me a little on, here? Yeah, turn it on its head. Yeah, what's the balance of, of the different elements? When are they going to do this? When are they going to do that? But like, if you forget fun. certain parts of the formula, people get upset, which Whew, yeah. cer- certainly is the case in the Bond series. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, by comparison to the later sequels, this is the longest film in the original series. Okay, I believe that. Yep, it has the least... Knowing, knowing that the other films are more fight movies it makes sense that this would be the longest of the bunch right totally and this is all taken from the uh we talked about this in the karate kid episode but the rocky morphology uh Mm, thing which you can look up online lots of fun this is sort of taken from that uh this also has the least fighting the least montage the most training and the most dialogue out of the whole series um it also has the longest uninterrupted dialogue sequence uh, of all of them, which is basically the whole middle chunk of the movie. Right. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Um, so it's kind of interesting. It definitely evolves. But one thing I wanted to try, and maybe we can do this almost as a lightning round here, but I wanted to see if you could guess what the plot of each of the sequels is. Well, okay. So here's the problem. I looked it up last night because I was like, oh, I know there's five. Of the, well, but but I, like, I don't really know the plot. All I know is that like, I know who he fights in the first four. I, di- I didn't go past okay. four. So okay. I know the second movie is a rematch that no rematches, but a rematch with Apollo Creed for some reason. Yep. And then the third movie, they introduce a new character played by Mr. T. So he fights yep. Mr. T. Okay. And then the fourth movie, he fights Dolph Lundgren from the USSR because it's the 80s. Yep. But yep. again, I don't know the context for any of those. Uh, and then I have no idea what happens in five or six. I, okay. Based okay. on the poster of five, I, well, I would have thought that five would have been the like, oh, he's getting back in the ring. But I'm pretty sure that's what six is about. Because like six, he was obviously like he was in his 60s when he made that. So I have to imagine that's. Maybe five is he's getting back in the ring and six is he's going to train the next guy. Although that's what Creed is. So I don't I yeah, I have no idea what five and six would be about. I well, that's not entirely. I know that he owns a restaurant in one of them for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did does. see that on Wikipedia, but I, okay. again, I cool. don't know the this context is, is for like any of this shit. detail. OK, OK, so we'll get your fresh reactions here on on some of the details. So, okay, perfect. OK, so Rocky two. Yeah. Rocky 2. At the beginning of Rocky 2, Rocky retires. Oh, of course he does. <laughs> retires from what? He's and fought one fight. From boxing. Well, no. like, the thing is, like, in the first movie, to your point, this is not a movie that calls out for a sequel. <laughs> no, it certainly does Rocky not. Rocky is 30 years old in the first movie, yeah. which, you know, younger than us, but... You know, in boxing terms, I guess, he's been fighting for a while. He's like fighting in the backs of bars and stuff. Like <laughs> he talks about his legs being like a yeah, problem. My legs don't work. And his, my, my, and his, my legs don't work. 
his back go, going out and yeah. like he has like a dislocated finger like he's pretty beat up in the first movie and so it makes sense that in the second movie he's like i'm done i this was enough for me this right. like the whole idea of the first one is it's a it's a one in a million shot it's maybe his last shot at greatness right right so he retired i just think it's funny to say you're retired from a thing that you've done once that's like <laughs> right. i don't know that it's right. technically retiring it's like no one's asking you back buddy but right. sure okay so he's right. retired he's not boxing anymore yeah, but then Apollo Creed goads him out of retirement, and Rocky finally beats him by learning to fight right-handed because he's a southpaw. Because he's a southie, right? Okay. okay. So, so that's the that's the training montage in the in right. the second one. Okay. Is, is yeah. Burgess Meredith in in the second one? He sure is. He's in most of these. Oh, okay, great. Um, yeah, yeah, because I have to assume in the sequel they're like, okay, we're gonna bring back Burgess Meredith, and we're more of that, like, because again, he's not in this very much, so. Yeah, exactly. He becomes a key part of the whole formula. Okay. It's they, pretty much the whole ensemble keeps coming back. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. So Rocky three. Yes. Mm. Rocky uh, loses his title because now he's the heavyweight champion of the world because he beat right, Apollo Creed. Apollo Creed. Okay. So he loses his title to Mr. T playing a character named Clubber Lang. All of the names in these movies are Jesus. hilarious. They're very on the nose. And then he gets it back. That's the plot of the movie. Cool. Um, Great. <laughs> <laughs> i'm assuming way, it's 72 minutes long <laughs> it's pretty short uh, along the way apollo and rocky develop a bromance okay. uh, and this is the movie where eye of the tiger comes from oh yes of course of course of yeah. course of course of course yes okay yeah and then rocky i believe tries to retire again yeah oh well of course <laughs> um okay rocky four starts with polly getting a robot uh, it's, sorry what <laughs> Yeah, Rocky Four is probably the f- one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. It is so unbelievably outrageous. But like, so Rocky is basically like rich and famous, right? Okay. And so the the Balboa family is like riding high in their big mansion, and Polly gets a robot. It is sure. the most eighties thing you could ever imagine. What the hell is this? Your present. Yo, I wanted a sports car for my birthday. Not no walking trash can. Other than that, uh, what happens here? Oh, and I think, sorry, I think maybe in Rocky 3, I think that is when Mickey dies. Oh, okay. R.I.P. He gets pushed over by Clubber Lang and has a heart attack. Oh, poor Mickey. Yeah. Okay. So, so, you so know, this time it's personal. Yeah. So yeah. no Mickey in Rocky 4. Yeah, there you go. So Rocky Four, Polly gets a robot. A Soviet Superman named Drago kills Apollo Creed in the ring. Oh Jesus! It, this is at the very beginning of the movie, and Rocky is Apollo Creed's coach because they're all buddy buddy now. Right, right, right. And Apollo's like, "Whatever you do, don't throw in the towel." And so Rocky like honors his wishes, but then Apollo Creed dies because of it. Oh Jesus! So then Rocky drags some logs, runs through snow, and grows a beard until he's able to defeat drago yeah this is very um, 80s in fact i will say this is the only other rocky movie that i've sort of seen because i don't know if you remember this but at my bachelor party when we went to the jazz club after <laughs> like we went for dinner and then we went to a jazz club and of all things to be playing at said club they had rocky four on the tvs <laughs> so i hilarious. so i remember seeing the training montage of him like carrying the logs or whatever and i was like what, yeah what, what is this and either you or bill was like it's rocky four so there right you go. i'm pretty sure that one is also the one that's like something like 30 percent montage <laughs> right yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> it's sort of the peak of the excesses of the whole series which is what makes it so much fun all right rocky five 
Avildsen returns to direct this one. Oh, okay. Yes. And both he and Stallone have a really dark vision for what this movie's going to be, which would have ended with Rocky's death. Mm, yeah, you got to go gritty and dark. Yep. And the studio was like, absolutely not. We are not <laughs> killing our cash cow. But Avildsen stays on to direct, but he's very upset with the results to the point where he actually released his own bootleg director's cut for oh. this movie in the early 2000s. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, because this so would have been kind peak, of like, that peak era where, you know, all of these franchises were like, okay, we're going to kill off the main character. This is the last mm-hmm. one. Even though, like, we're definitely not going to, like, because you think about it, like, Freddy's dead and Jason's mm-hmm. goes to hell and Rocky Five, Rocky's terminal illness or whatever. Like, <laughs> Right, right. Now that you mention it, it does kind of feel like a bit of a trend, except they do not allow that to happen. Basically, what ends up happening in this, Polly bankrupts the family. Okay. Rocky uh, gets well, brain robot. Robots are expensive. Very expensive robots. The upkeep on your robot. That's right. It'll get you. I think he actually, like, gives power of attorney to their finance person, and then they just, like, screw them over. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Whatever. Rocky gets brain damage and retires again. <laughs> um... The, the Balboas move back to the old neighborhood because they don't have any money. Of course. Um, and then Rocky trains a young boxer named Tommy Gunn. Okay. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Yep. Instead of helping his son, who is uh, being bullied at school, uh, turns out Tommy Gunn's an asshole and Rocky ends up beating him up in a street fight. And that's the end of that movie. Cool. Okay. <laughs> so yep. he doesn't but die. Again, he beats the shit out of his protege. Cool. cool, cool yeah, cool, pretty cool, much. Cool. And and I mean, again, think about what just happened in the last movie where he was like trying to win the Cold War <laughs> fighting a Soviet Superman. And then now he's having like a street fight and like everything's falling apart in his life. I think people hate that one right. and see it as kind of the black sheep in the franchise. I kind of like it. I don't think it's a perfect movie, but again, it's it is that John G. Avildsen sort of touch. It feels a little bit more grounded, a bit more like the first one. There's right. a bit more darkness in it. Right. I think if Avildsen and Stallone had their way, I think it actually could have been a great ending to the franchise. But that's not what happened. And then the last one, because we're not going to talk about Creed, is Rocky Balboa. So in this one, Adrian dies off screen before the film starts. So Rocky's kind of alone. Polly finally cleans up his act. Oh, Polly's still uh, kicking around, though. Okay. Good yeah. Know. And Rocky is lured out of retirement once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he is a restaurateur in this one um, because there's a simulation on, you know, some sports program of him fighting the current champ. Right. And in it, Rocky, like, wins by a slim margin. So the champ is like, oh, I need to fight Rocky. The other really funny thing is that during the prize fight with Homer and Dredrick Tatum, they have guest star Michael Buffer, who is sort of a famous ring announcer, famous for his line, let's get ready to rumble. And this is sort of a funny instance of The Simpsons sort of not predicting the future, but kind of a back and forth between the things they're parodying and then real life where they put Michael Buffer in this episode and then Michael Buffer appeared in Rocky Balboa. Oh, <laughs> he's actually he's actually an announcer in that movie. So it, it's funny how these things kind of come full circle that way. So once yeah, once again, The Simpsons did it first. So Rocky gets kind of inspired to get like back in the ring and start boxing a little bit. And so he does fight and he goes the distance again and loses again, but comes out a mensch, basically. Cool. 
So that's the entire Rocky series in a nutshell. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. You haven't sold me, but, um, you know, <laughs> I, I can see how if you're into like I liked James Bond movies and they're all not necessarily very good, but like yeah, I'm a very in quality. Yeah, very in quality. So, OK, fair, yeah. fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Rocky Balboa. If you're going to watch one, I think Rocky Balboa is pretty great. Rocky 2 is also pretty great. Okay. Um, well, I'm not going to, but I, I appreciate the, <laughs> the advice. Fair enough. Anyone else out there who's Rocky curious, those, that's, those are good places to start. <laughs> All right, man. Well, were there any moments in this movie that felt like Simpsons jokes but weren't? Yeah, a lot, actually, to the point where I'm not going to go through all of them, but I've highlighted a few of my favorites. I mean, I kind of have dumped on the writing a little bit, but there's a lot of really great quotable lines in this movie and some like yeah. serious, like laugh out loud, funny jokes. Um, so I'm just going to highlight a few of them. The first would be the doo-wop singing street gang. feels very sipsy i don't understand what is happening there's no context for it there's no explanation for it oh but nate's saying there is would it surprise you to know that one of those singers is sylvester stallone's brother it would not surprise me in the least (laughs) what's his name again does make some sense Uh, i don't remember it's oh damn it it's like rick Stallone. no it's not rick um Frank Stallone. Frank Stallone. Yeah, he's put out some albums, I'm pretty sure. Frank Stallone. Um, that makes sense. No, and then there's a great Simpsons-y line of, you deaf? No, I'm short. I love that. Um, I don't remember the context of who says it or why, but I thought it was really funny. Um, the, 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 the. Oh, this is not like a joke, but I, for whatever reason, it just, it made me laugh really hard. At one point, he goes to meet, uh, is it? Grazzo, whatever the mob guy that he works for, Gazzo, Grazzo, who is played by an actor who is in The Godfather and a bunch of like Billy Friedkin movies. So he might come right. up again in other episodes of our show, but they go to a restaurant called Pat's King of Steaks. And it's just on a big sign that says <laughs> Pat's King of Steaks. And I don't know why. That just, that made me this laugh. Is a, it's a famous Philly institution. I'm the fam- Philly cheesesteaks. Yeah, no, I know. I but it's it, the king of steaks. It's just it's funny. King of steaks. And then I love how when Rocky comes in, he's got on the back of his robe, he's got like the name of the company Polly works for, and mm-hmm. like they they're like, what What are you doing that for? And it's like Polly gets three hundred bucks, and like I get to keep the robe. But the commentators like mention it in a very Simpsony way of being like the Italian stallion, some meat sign on the back of his robe. There, have you seen what that was? Like, it's just like <laughs> one of those classic things of like they would do that in The Simpsons where either someone was doing an impression of a famous sports commentator or they would actually get right. the real famous sports commentator to just comment on the absurdity of because it's The Simpsons. Um, right. Like, I think of like when the pretzel episode when they're throwing pretzels at Whitey Ford and, and here come the pretzels. Hall of Famer Whitey Ford now on the field, pleading with the crowd for for some kind of sanity. Uh-oh, in a barrage of pretzels now knocking Whitey unconscious. Anyway, it just felt very <laughs> Simpsons-y. So, or, the, yeah. or the Planet of the Horses uh, commentary yeah, on the horse race. Just, exactly. Yeah. So it's there's a lot of really great moments of levity and comedy in this movie that I was not expecting at all. Again, it's one of those things that made me enjoy the movie much more than I think I maybe anticipated. What about you? Was there was there anything that felt particularly Simpson-y to you? 
Yeah, so I mean, the thing that comes to mind immediately is when Rocky comes into the ring and he's got all of his, like, crew around him, they're all wearing pink shirts, Hmm. which I believe was actually a laundry mishap, much like what happens on The Simpsons. Okay, Um, fair enough. Where, you know... Homer Homer's white shirt gets turned pink and then he goes to the insane asylum and meets Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah. Um so that immediately was like, "Oh, <laughs> that's odd that they're all wearing pink for some reason. It's not the color I would have imagined for the folks in his corner, but sure." But yeah, no, you're right. There's a lot of good funny moments in here and also just like weird, quirky, unexpected stuff that kind of fits in the Simpsons universe. A lot of fun characters. Totally. Well, how did this film you know, fair. I mean, <laughs> knowing that it had six sequels and a spin-off series of three films, I'm going to imagine it didn't bomb. But I mean, uh, yeah. you never know. So uh how did this movie do, Nate? It did real well. Real well. <laughs> um the domestic gross was uh hundred and seventeen million dollars. Oh wow. Um, Against a one just... million dollar budget. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so it did okay. <laughs> big multiplier. Yeah. Again, that John G. Avildsen magic. It's like he had a track record of this, even with his like smaller movies where it was like tiny budgets, huge multipliers. Damn. But to put it in context, the whole franchise has made $1.9 billion. And when you add up all of the budgets, the budgets add up to $279 million. Holy shit. Yeah. So it's a hell of a lot of money. People love these movies. They keep coming to these movies. And I feel like Creed is is going to keep them going for a while. And then on top of that, you know, this this movie, not so much the sequels, but this movie was a real critical hit as well. Again, they did a really good job of courting the critics. Right. They were doing the late night circuits. They had their story down. Even early days, they were getting critics on set. They were getting critics, you know, weighing in on the script, seeing footage, all this kind of stuff, sort of warming them up to have a positive reaction to the movie. It kept getting described again and again as a sleeper hit by right. various critics. I think the Academy Awards, same deal. They were really just like pushing it really, really hard. Um, it ends up winning Best Picture, of course. Uh, John G. Avildsen gets his Best Director. Um, and uh, it also gets Best Film Editing, all at the Academy Awards. It's nominated for a bunch more, too. Uh, you have Sylvester Stallone for Best Actor, Talia Shire for Best Actress, Burt Young and Burgess Meredith for supporting. So again, one of those rare double nominations, best original screenplay, best original song and best sound. Shocking. This didn't win best original song. (laughs) Yeah. What did evergreen by Barbara Streisand? Uh, Okay. Babs. Old Babs. Yeah. It's from a star is born. Okay. Well, that would make sense. Uh, So this movie beat all the president's men at the Oscars. Wow. Yeah. Damn. To your earlier point, it really tapped into a hunger that people had at mm-hmm. that moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. For some something that you could believe in that also didn't feel out of step with the moment. Right. And I think this movie really threaded that needle perfectly of feeling grounded, recognizing the challenges, recognizing how hard things are, and then also convincing you that, like, you know. The American dream is alive and well. Roger Ebert was one of the people who was really sold on this at the time. He gave it four out of four stars in his review. Uh, And he says, what makes the movie extraordinary is that it doesn't try to surprise us with an original plot with twists and complications. It wants to involve us on an elemental, a sometimes savage level. 
It's about heroism and realizing your potential, about taking your best shot and sticking by your girl. Uh, It sounds not only cliched, but corny, and yet it's not, not a bit, because it really does work on those levels. It involves us emotionally, makes us commit ourselves. We find, maybe to our surprise, after remaining detached during so many movies, that this time we care. Hmm. Which I think is about right uh, in a lot of ways. You know, you, you really don't want to buy into this movie necessarily, but it I think it wins most people over. Yeah. Uh, except for Vincent Canby at the New York Times, <laughs> who uh, called it 30s make-believe. Clearly, he was sort of not so happy about the throwback to Frank Capra. At the end of his review, he says, the problem, I think, comes back to Mr. Stallone. Throughout the movie, we are asked to believe that his Rocky is compassionate, interesting, even heroic, though the character we see is simply an unconvincing actor imitating a lug. Pretty rough. Well, I mean, yeah, I I guess that's one way to put it. Like we were saying, I, I think in one of our recent episodes, like, look, if you get turned off by something early on, you're 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 not going to buy into anything else, right? Yeah. You're going to notice every little flaw in the film if you're turned off early on. And so, look, if you're if you don't buy buy into Sylvester Stallone in this movie, you're not going to care about the rest never, of it. It's, it's yeah, exactly. Totally reliant on on buying into his performance, at least at a sort of basic level. Yeah. But what about for you, Adam? What 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 do you think? Do the strengths outweigh the weaknesses? Is it something you'd recommend? Look, I I definitely think the strengths outweigh the weaknesses, no question. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went into this not anticipating that I was going to enjoy it very much and was surprised at how much I did. Would I recommend it? I think I would. I think even for people like me who don't enjoy sports movies, who normally this would not be their cup of tea, I think it will win most people over. If you get to the end of the first date sequence and that hasn't hooked you then i would say turn it off for me that was the turning point if you're not buying into it by that point i don't think there's anything that's going to win you over so by that point you can just call it a loss it's probably like 45 minutes into the movie or whatever so like it's not one of those things of like oh you're getting an hour and 20 in but yeah for all the film's flaws and i do think it is a flawed film sure I do think that the strengths absolutely outweigh the weaknesses and it's worth seeing if only for Avildsen's contributions alone. There's definitely something here. Yeah. I mean, I think it's safe to say that I agree. (laughs) I mean, I do think that this is for me kind of borderline masterpiece status. Oh, wow. Okay. I think that there are, Like you said, there's very little that I would cut about this movie. Mm -hmm. And almost every scene has a sort of alchemy to it where the script, the acting, the filmmaking are all coming together in this way that like make these every scene memorable, unique, interesting, something you haven't seen on film before. It is one of those movies that sort of convinced me that digging into these movies that are highly parodied in the pop culture is worthwhile because yeah yes there are those moments that you already know in this movie right but there is so much below the surface worth digging into that will surprise you it's not what you expect it's not a fight movie (laughs) right there are a lot of interesting character moments uh you know funny moments there's a love story like there's so much that is below just you know yelling adrian and a training montage so i would say definitely check it out what about 
a double feature. What would you recommend as extra credit to tag on to this movie as a nice comparison? Well, see, this is what's interesting, because the entire time I was watching it, I couldn't help but think about The Karate Kid, which we obviously talked about in our first season. And I went into knowing absolutely nothing about kind of thinking it was a joke and coming away from it loving that film. I know that it's maybe unfair because it's not really a competition, but I think Karate Kid's a vastly superior film. And wow. Yeah. And I enjoyed it much more than this. Like as much as I did, like I enjoyed this movie, but it's not like something I like feel the need to watch the sequels of or rush back to revisit. Whereas like I said, after watching the Karate Kid, I was like, I can't wait to like show this to my son one day. Like I really, really enjoyed that experience. It's interesting knowing that they come from the same filmmaker and that Karate Kid comes second because it really does Mm -hmm. feel not someone who's just playing the hits again, but taking the lessons learned from this and applying them and refining them to create a similar but superior picture. And maybe it's the fact that it's a kid and you can't help but root for him. And like the Miyagi character is there who would be, I guess the equivalent would be like the Burgess Meredith character. But like Miyagi's there from almost the beginning and it really is a mentorship and lessons learned and all this stuff. I think that film is so brilliant and does a lot of the same things that this film does. But I think, like I said, it takes the lessons of this film, refines it, makes it even better. And I imagine that watching those two in a double feature would be a really interesting and entertaining viewing experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. What about you? What would you pair with this? So I was thinking about this. We were talking about this off mic a little while ago, but I think that Saturday Night Fever would be my pick. Interesting. For a couple reasons. I think it's a really interesting comparison point. Because it is also a sort of sports movie, in a sense. I don't know if people think of it that way, but it's like it's about dance competition. It's got a similar sort of milieu where like the, the main characters are, you know, in Brooklyn. They're actually in the neighborhood that I used to live in, in New York, called Bay Ridge. Which at the time was like a very working class neighborhood. Sort of similar vibes to Rocky. And I think the interesting thing is that Avildsen was actually supposed to direct it. <laughs> And he turned down Rocky 2 because he was working on Saturday Night Fever. However, he was let go from the film because he wanted to have a happy ending. Oh, interesting. I'm not sure if it was the producer or the writer was like, absolutely not. This movie does not have a happy ending. He was fired literally when he was finding out that Rocky was nominated for 10 Oscars. Wow. He was like having the conversation with the producer and a a PA came in and was like, hey, by the way, (laughs) I know you're being five right now, but your your movie just got nominated for 10, 10 Oscars. So, yeah. So it's it's really interesting that Avildsen was attracted to that project. And you can definitely see some of the through lines in the movie, but it does have a much more new Hollywood kind of ending Mm -hmm. that's a little bit ambiguous, pretty dark. There's a bit of a sense of like a light at the end of the tunnel in that movie, but it's not quite as uh, a resounding victory as Rocky. But it's also great and, uh, you know, fantastic performances, very grounded performances. You have John Travolta sort of at the height of his power, yeah. you know, star making sort of performance. But it's it, again, it's not what you expect. You have sort of an idea of what this movie is and the sort of 
you know, classic images of Travolta in his white suit doing disco dancing, but there's a whole story there behind those scenes and around those scenes, a pretty good uh, ensemble cast that's really grounding it in a reality that might surprise you. So I definitely recommend checking that movie out. Cool. So that brings us to the end of this episode. And as always, we like to tease our next episode, but we want to keep it a little bit of a surprise for you. But we will say this, we will be celebrating a cinematic classic that is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, which is hard to believe, but also very, very exciting. So be sure to tune in next time to find out what we will be chatting about. Until then, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans brought to you by ThatShelf.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review and share this episode with the Simpson fans and film buffs in your life. Uh, We really appreciate it. It goes a long way. Even just retweeting our posts or re-Xing our posts. What do we say now? Good Lord. I just... Re-skeeting? Re-zeeting? Yeah, I don't know. Well, we're on TikTok too, so you can re-tick us. Tick-t-t-tick-tock. Anyway, all that is to say we appreciate any and all support. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, Nate. We'll see you around the flex. See you around the flex. I just realized the thing we didn't talk about in this episode uh, this mm-hmm. is another one of those cases of a uh, movie turned into a musical unnecessarily. The Rocky musical, which oh, right. my parents have seen because they did it in Cambridge. And like, apparently they were like, oh, it's really cool. Like they they turned the um, the because like, so they basically had like the the ring comes down onto the stage, but then they used the, the, the sides of the ring were up and then they wore like roller skates for the skating scene and they were like oh it was actually really convincing and like <laughs> okay. anyway uh, it's but um yeah it doesn't seem sort like of a, always wanted to see a skating yeah, date on, yeah. on stage faithfully reproduced yeah exactly and i don't know i'm gonna look it up uh i don't know if it's like original music or a jukebox musical or no yeah, yeah original I, music by stephen flaherty well, if it's not by Bill Conti, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's going to have going to fly now, right? Like, they're going to have to. I would hope so, but you never know mm-hmm. with these things. Uh, so, oh, my God. Okay. Uh, this is great bonus content. <clears throat> First song of the show is called Ain't Down Yet. That's sung by the company. The second sure. song of the show is called My Nose Ain't Broken, sung by Rocky. <laughs> right a few songs okay. later we get my nose ain't broken reprise <laughs> well there's an that's an important arc in the movie that yeah, uh yeah. you know burgess meredith is like yeah you know your nose ain't broken you yeah, should yeah, retire yeah. while you're still pretty and then and then of course he breaks his nose in the final fight because now he's a real boxer yeah uh well according to the cast recording that was put out gonna fly now is on the album but it's only 38 seconds long and then there's a training montage hmm. training montage number two features eye of the tiger so Oh, and then the oh. fight round fifteen gonna fly now. So clearly they've they've incorporated they the in. hits. Um, but I guess I'm gonna have to get you a copy of this. Um, <laughs> the album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Or a, um, I will graciously accept that. It won best scenic design at the Tonys. So okay, there you go. Wow. Um, gonna fly now. Gonna fly now. Gonna fly now. Uh, 
directed by Alex Timbers, who he's the guy who directs all of the movie musicals. Like he did uh, Beetlejuice and mm. uh, Moulin Rouge, and he's doing another one, um, I think. But anyway, it's just I think it's that's hilarious that Rocky the musical exists because um, it does not it does not need to exist. But um, yeah, no, not really. <laughs>